Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Well, an interesting thought experiment is to consider what it would be like to meet someone unexpected in heaven. So take, for example, a scene from Dante's Purgatorio, which is the second volume, for those of y'all that don't know, of his Divine Comedy. In Dante's 14th century epic poem, uh, the Roman poet Virgil, he guides Dante through hell, purgatory, and heaven. And in the poem, Virgil represents the virtue of reason. Actually, I think he doesn't, now that I'm remembering, I don't think he actually guides him through heaven. I think Beatrice does. Yeah, so, um, but anyway, (laughs) Virgil does guide him through hell and purgatory. And uh, Virgil is there to represent the virtue of reason. And he resides in limbo, which is the entryway to hell. So, and he does so along with Homer and Socrates and all of the other great philosophers and other poets of antiquity who lived before the time of Christ. Because his, 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 his residing in limbo is not quite a punishment, um, but it's certainly not a reward. And what Dante is trying to tell us in this is that reason alone cannot attain heaven. Faith in Christ is necessary. So we're about two-thirds of the way through the journey. Dante and Virgil meet Stadius, another pagan poet and a devotee of Virgil who lived just after the time of Christ. Virgil is surprised to see Stadius on the road to heaven rather than in limbo with Homer and Socrates and all of his, his compatriots. Stadius tells Dante and Virgil that he secretly came to faith and was baptized when he saw the Christians' courage under imperial persecution. Now, of course, we have no historical evidence that that actually happened with Stadius, but um, that he was a secret convert to Christianity. But Dante is making an interesting point here about the unexpected mercy of God. We see the same kind of thing in today's gospel reading, uh, that well-known parable of the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee and the tax collector. So let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verse 9, Luke 18, 9. And you can also find this passage in your prayer book on page 285. And Jesus spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. So to really understand the impact of the parable, the impact of the story, we need to understand these two stock characters. And by stock characters, what I mean is that these were common characters in rabbinic storytelling of the time. They're kind of, um, yeah, we might say they were typecast, right? So these two stock characters. So in first century Palestine, first century Israel, the Romans were occupying what we call the Holy Land. The current royal dynasty, the Herods, they were of questionable Jewish ancestry, and they were definitely not of the Davidic line. So they did not belong on the throne of David, and they probably weren't even Jewish. They were culturally Roman pagans, and they were vassals of Rome. The Herods were not independent. um, You know, it was not an independent kingdom. It was a subsidiary kingdom of Rome, and Herod was only on the throne by Rome's pleasure. So the tax collectors, 
or the publicans, as the King James Version calls them. They were Jewish people who were working for and with Rome. The Romans allowed them to charge whatever they wanted in taxes, so long as the proper amount was given to Rome. As you can imagine, this led to almost universal abuse, universal corruption, universal cheating at the expense of the publican's fellow Jews. So imagine, to kind of give a parallel, a Frenchman who was working with the Nazis during the French occupation in the early 1940s, and you get a picture of the character of that typical stock tax collector in the stories. He would have rightly been hated by his countrymen and considered to be among the worst of sinners. You want to have the worst character in your story, you put a tax collector in there. On the other hand, the Pharisee, by contrast, would have been seen as a good, upright, and pious person to Jesus' audience. He's the guy who's at church every time the doors are open, volunteering on all the committees, tithing and fasting beyond what the Old Testament law required. Externally, he's a model Jew, a paragon, and a good example to his countrymen. But with this Pharisee in this parable, we see that internally there's something wrong. So let's look at verse 11. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Whenever we pray, I thank you that I'm not like other men, there's a problem. Even though it's dressed up in this veneer of thanking God, what this prayer shows is that the Pharisee was actually trusting in himself, as St. Luke says in the beginning, the introduction to our parable. This is the essence of the sin of pride, which is traditionally seen as one of the seven deadly sins, and in fact is the sin of which the devil himself is most guilty. The English reformer John Boyes writes this. He says, There are four kinds of proud people. One, arrogant people who attribute every good thing in themselves to themselves and not to God. Two, presumptuous people who acknowledge that God is the giver of their grace, but because of their own merit. Yes, God's giving me grace, but I kind of deserve it. Number three, those who boast of their own eminence, which indeed they do not have. They're boasting of something they don't even have. And the number four, those who despise others and portray themselves as singular and unique in what they have. They're looking down on everybody else. And we see when we look at all four of these things, they're the problem of the Pharisee in our parable. And indeed, this is often the problem for religious folk like us. It's all too easy to look at ourselves rather than to look at God. It's all too easy to see ourselves better than those sinners out there. St. Augustine says that this is like going to the doctor for the purpose of gloating over the sick people in the waiting room. He writes this. The Pharisee was not rejoicing so much in his own clean bill of health as in comparing it with the diseases of others. He came to the doctor. It would have been more worthwhile to inform him by confession of the things that were wrong with himself instead of keeping his wounds secret and having the nerve to crow over the scars of others. 
In fact, St. Cyril of Alexandria says that this is evidence of the spiritual sickness of the Pharisee and, by extension, us when we're in a Pharisaical mindset. St. Cyril writes, No one who is in good health ridicules one who is sick for being laid up and bedridden. He is rather afraid, for perhaps he may become the victim of similar sufferings. A person in battle, because another has fallen, does not praise himself for having escaped from misfortune. The weakness of others is not a suitable subject for praise for those who are in health. Let's look at the tax collector. The tax collector, on the other hand, realizes that he's in trouble. Verse 13. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. As liturgical Christians, we're familiar with the Kyrie eleison prayer, Lord, have mercy upon us. In fact, we just did that. We just prayed that as part of our liturgy today. And we pray that almost every week at Holy Communion in the uh, classical Anglican tradition. But the word for mercy used by the tax collector in this passage is a little bit different. He's not using the usual eleos, which we get our eleison from, right? He's using a different Greek word which carries the idea of propitiation or atonement along with mercy. He's speaking sacrificial terms. The tax collector realizes that his sins need to be dealt with. He needs someone to atone for him. He needs the blood of the sacrifice. This realization, this repentance, is why our Lord says he was justified and the Pharisee was not. Justified is legal language, meaning to be shown or to be declared righteous. The Lord covered and paid for the tax collector's sins, and therefore the tax collector was declared righteous. The fine was paid, he can go free. The Pharisee, on the other hand, fails to realize his need for propitiation. He fails to repent, and therefore he remains in his unrealized unrighteousness. So this is, of course, a parable, but we do have actual tax collectors, actual publicans in the Gospels who similarly repented and followed Jesus. So in the very next chapter, in, uh, in chapter 19, we have the story of Zacchaeus, who's described as a chief tax collector, and he demonstrates his repentance by paying back those who he cheated fourfold. So at the end of the passage... In, in verses 9 and 10, Jesus says this. He says, This day is salvation come unto this house, forasmuch as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and save that which was lost. And then we have St. Matthew, one of the four evangelists, who was himself a publican, a tax collector before Jesus called him. And in Matthew chapter 9, he leaves his custom booth behind and follows Jesus. And even as the text says, he brings many tax collectors and sinners with him to Christ. God indeed does show his mercy to the worst of sinners. But what about the Pharisee? 
Is there mercy for a Pharisee? After all, in our days, the word Pharisee has become synonymous with the legalistic hypocrite. We don't think of the pious guy that the that Jesus audience would have think of. We think of people more like the guy in the parable, right? The hypocrite, the, uh, the legalist. Does Jesus offer mercy and atonement to a Pharisee as well? Well, to answer that, we can look at our epistle. St. Paul was himself a Pharisee. And uh, he describes himself in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 8. This is how he describes himself. He says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he have, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained unto me, those I counted loss for Christ. In our epistle reading today from 1 Corinthians 15, in verses 9 and 10, St. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, that I that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. For, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. If God can save Zacchaeus, Matthew, and Paul, he can save you and me, whether we're traitors and cheats like the tax collectors or puffed up Pharisees like Paul. God's grace is indeed not in vain. And I don't know about you, but I look forward to seeing many tax collectors and sinners, and even a few Pharisees, when by Christ's grace and blood, I am eventually before his throne. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven.